You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. All right, this is God's Word from Romans seven fifteen through 25. For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And this is Ephesians 4, 20-24. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This semester in RUF, we're doing a little series, a little study through this topic of what the Bible calls sanctification which is a big Bible-y word that just, it just means transformation. It's the process whereby God graciously transforms you into a whole person, a wholehearted, humble person that learns to love God and love other people. The way that we've kind of been putting it here is that uh, sanctification is God changing you into the person you were created to be. And we've been saying, just by way of review up here on the front end, we have been saying that sanctification happens by being united to Christ. That happens by faith. Not everybody is being sanctified because not everybody is united to Christ. But if you are, you are in him and he is in you. You have a new self. And what we said last week was the ethic, the logic of the Christian life is to therefore be who you now are in Christ. Now... That's all review. If the logic of the Christian life is just be who you are, that makes it seem easy. And if you have been a Christian for like more than two seconds, you will know that it's not that easy. It's not easy to be who you are. You struggle, you fail, you take one step forward, like 12 step backwards, and it's hard and it's frustrating And so I want to talk about that tonight. And to set it up, I want to read you something. I may have read this. I'm sure some of y'all have heard me read this to you before. This is a a diary excerpt from a man named Samuel Johnson. 
It's a British writer in the 18th century, and he has this diary that where he wrote these you know, different excerpts. It's like his personal journal that people have and have published, and now you get to read this guy's diary. And it's this guy has, has written throughout his whole life his attempts to wake up early in the morning to pray. And I want to just read you a couple of different excerpts, and you're going to get the impression that he's not a morning person. So here it is. The first entry is from 1738. It begins like this. O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth, which is his word for sleeping in. Been sleeping. Help me to redeem the time that I have wasted sleeping in. That was in 1738. 1757, 19 years later, he writes this. O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time that's been spent in idleness and sin. A couple years later, 1764, he writes, My purpose is from this time on to avoid idleness and to rise early. Next year, 1765, I purpose to rise at eight because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise for I often lie until two. This lazy man. 1769, four years after that, he writes, I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight and then by degrees at six. 1775, he writes, When I look back upon resolutions and improvement which have year after year been made and been broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? And then he resolves again to wake up at 8. And then the last entry, 1781, 43 years after his first entry. 43 years after his first entry. Three years before his death, here's what he writes. I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. And then he vows to rise at 8 o'clock or sooner. <laughs> and I read that to you because, it, man, it just resonates. It resonates with me. I mean, I, I mean, if you're anything like me, you know what it's like that you have that thing about you that you just hate or you are frustrated by and you want to change and you struggle and you struggle and you try and you try and it just feels like you can't turn the corner. It just feels like you can't do it. And after a while of doing that and failing and doing that and failing, one step forward, three steps back, one step forward, three steps back, it just feels like I'm just stuck like this. And it's discouraging and it's confusing and it's frustrating and you don't know what to do about it. So let's talk about it tonight. And I want you to see um, two things from these two different passages that Sam read for us. I want you to, uh, just two simple points tonight. Struggling is normal, and struggling is good. Two simple ideas. We're going to unpack them with a little bit more detail tonight. Struggling is normal. Struggling is good. Let's look at the first one. What do I mean by struggling is normal? Well, um, to, to get into this, over Christmas break, my wife Catherine and I got into the Netflix show, The Crown. And if you're familiar with The Crown, it is a show that kind of zeroes in on the early reign of Queen Elizabeth. 
And so the, the series begins with her dad, King George, in power, but he is sick and he's dying, and I think it's in episode two where he dies, and she, you know, inherits the throne. And so what, there, there's this really interesting scene where she's getting dressed in all black. It's like her mourning clothes. She's getting ready to go to the funeral. And she gets this letter from her grandmother, who is still alive, obviously. Her dad's mom writes her, Queen Elizabeth, this letter because she is now about to become queen. And here's what this letter says. When, when my wife first saw this and she showed it to me, I was like, I got to communicate this to RUF. Here's what the letter says. Dearest Lilibet, that's her little sweet name for Elizabeth. Dearest Lilibet, I know how you love your papa, my son, and I know you will be as devastated as I am by this loss, but you must put those sentiments to one side now for duty calls. The grief of your father's death will be felt far and wide. Your people will need your strength and leadership. I have seen three great monarchies brought down through their failure to separate personal indulgences from duty. You must not allow yourself to make similar mistakes. And then here's the part of the letter I want you to pay attention to. She says this, and while you mourn your father, you must also mourn someone else, Elizabeth Mountbatten, for she has been replaced by another person, Queen Elizabeth. The two Elizabeths will frequently be in conflict with one another. The fact is the crown must win, must always win. Here's what she's saying. She is saying the moment that your dad died and you became queen, there were two selves inside of you. The old you before you were queen and now the new you, the queen you. And the old you is dead. So just as you are dressing up in black and mourning for the loss of your father, you must mourn the loss of your previous non-royal queenly life. That life is over. And yet, at the same time, the old you is still going to be around and these two selves are going to constantly be in conflict. And the reality is you must always let the crown win. You must actually be who you actually are. That is an unbelievable picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is saying, if you are a a Christian, you have a divided self. There are two two yous in you. You have an old you, your your old self, and you have the new you. And we've been talking about this over and over and over, and we're going to keep talking about this over and over and over because it's important. The old you, if you see this from the Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, when he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. This is who you were before you were in Christ. And we've been talking about this, that the old self is dominated and driven and defined by what I do, what I have, and what people think of me. That's your old self. And Paul says, when you become a Christian, that self dies. You are a new self. You have been raised with Christ, and that's the true you. That's the real you. But the, rea- the reality is this old you is still around in one sense. There's a residue of your old self. And so you have all of these old instincts, these old desires, these old ways of thinking, and these two selves are constantly at war with one another. So here's my point. Look at, well, look at Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read 22 and 24. 
Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The point is, you have a divided self. Old self, kind of still around, even though it's dead, and new self. This is why phrases like, be true to yourself, are not helpful. Which self do you want me to be true to? I have two of them. Uh, I have one self that wants to crush a cookout milkshake every night of the week. <laughs> and I have another self that wants to have, you know, my my summer conference bod ready and in order for, you know, the beach. Which self do I be true to? You know, these phrases like, you know, follow your heart. That's not helpful. I have two hearts. I have two selves. I have two competing desires inside of me. I have one uh, self, one heart that wants to stay up till 2 a.m. watching Netflix every single night. And I have another self that actually wants to get a good night's sleep. Which heart do you want me to follow? The reality is, if you have two selves inside of you, old self, new self, then what this fundamentally means is that you struggle. You have two competing desires in you at once, and they're in contradiction with each other, and that means that you struggle. That struggling is normal. There is no such thing as a non-struggling Christian. It's normal. Let's look at Paul for an example. Just use Paul as a case study. Paul in chapter 7 gives you a little window into his heart and what he thinks about himself. Look at chapter 7, verse 15, right there at the start. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. This is an amazing verse in the Bible. Paul is saying, I don't understand me. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to wrap my head around my life. And then he explains it. He keeps going. He says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Here's all this stuff that I hate, and I keep doing it. Here's all this stuff that I want to do, and I don't do it. That's amazing to hear somebody in the Bible talk that way. Do you remember the old movie, um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith? This is from 2005, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, blockbuster. And um, they each play secret assassins. They each have like a, a secret life that neither one of them know about where they're like assassins. And they each get hired by these companies to take out each other. So there's an interesting plot twist. So once they figure out that the other person is an assassin trying to kill them, and that person's trying to kill the other one, they get into this big throwdown. And it's in their living room, and they're like shooting machine guns through the wall at each other. They're diving behind, you know, couches, and they're beating the crap out of each other. There's literally one scene, they're wrestling on the ground, and Brad Pitt throws her on the ground, and he's just like over and over pounding her. And this fight escalates, and they're all bloody, and it ends with both of them pointing guns like right at each other's faces. And it's this tense moment of like, what's going to happen? Who's going to pull the trigger first? And they're just sitting there waiting, tench, tench, tension. (laughs) It's tense as they tench up, and they're waiting, they're bloody, (sighs) 
They're panting, and they drop the guns and start making out with each other. <laughs> Classic cinematography. I mean, but when I saw that scene, I thought, that feels like my life as a Christian. <laughs> Because as someone who follows Jesus, you know what it's like where you're like, I hate my sin and I'm fighting my sin. And then the next moment you're like, and I want to make out with my sin. (laughs) And I mean, you have these instincts, right? You have these feelings where you're like, I do not want to drink anymore. I do not want to keep going out. It is so awful. It is so empty. And then Friday gets here and you're like, let's go out, (laughs) right? Or you're like, I really do hate porn. I hate it. I don't want to do it anymore. You hate it, and at the same time, you love it, and you can't stop. And you have these things that you have, these competing desires in you where you hate it and you love it. How do you explain that other than to say you have two selves waging war at you? Old self, new self, that means you struggle. That means struggling is normal. Uh, Paul gets so frustrated and exacerbated with all this. Look at verse 24. He kind of crescendos into this, this verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Why do I keep loving what I hate? Why do I keep hating what I love? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Brene Brown once said that the two most powerful words in the English language are me too. This was before the Me Too movement was like a thing. But I think one of the reasons why the Me Too movement is so powerful is because you have these women that, have, that, that are giving expression and giving voice to this painful, awful experience that they've gone through. And it's, and it's let other people know that have been struggling and suffering in secrecy and in silence that they're not alone. They thought they were the only ones. And then when somebody steps forward and says, I struggle with this, I have experienced this, and somebody comes out of the shadows and essentially says, I have too. In fact, I've been reading through this Brene Brown book, and one of the subtitles says, I thought it was just me, but it isn't. And here you have St. Paul, like a Bible hero guy, who wrote like a giant chunk of the New Testament. And he is saying, me too. I don't understand myself. I keep screwing up. I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. You thought you were alone. You thought it was just you, but it's not. You know, I I have the uh, privilege of getting to sit down and talk with y'all over coffee sometimes, and if we have, um, uh, I guess, a close enough relationship, some of you will share with me personal struggles that you have, which, by the way, is, extre- is just an honor and a privilege for me to get to kind of enter into that part of your life with you. I'll just say that it's a real honor. But as I've heard students kind of talk about their struggles, and, you know, I'm struggling with depression, or I'm struggling with anxiety, I'm struggling with view of myself, I'm struggling with addiction, I'm struggling with, you know, whatever... I have noticed that there's a pattern that students add this extra layer on top of their struggles that they shouldn't be struggling. 
So not only do you have the, the, the weight of what you're already struggling with, you add this, this added layer on top, this added weight of the guilt of, I shouldn't be struggling with this. I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be dealing with this. I shouldn't be wrestling with this. And if I can do anything for you tonight, if, the, if there's any purpose that tonight might serve, my prayer is that that top layer will get removed that you will see Paul, Bible hero guy, say, I struggle too. That you hear me say, I struggle too. Struggling is normal. But okay, here's the question. What's the point? You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but like when you become a Christian, when you get united to Jesus by faith, and again, I don't assume that everybody is in this room, but if you are connected to Jesus by faith, what's the, why? You know, he could have just flipped a switch and made the struggle go away. He could have just made you sinless. No more struggle, no more battle, no more internal back and forth, no more contradictory desires. Why, didn't, why did he do it like this? Why did he not just kind of flip the switch and you're just like, boom, problem solved. The rest of my life is easy and awesome. Why the struggle? Well, because I want you to see, secondly, that the struggle is good. It's not just normal. Everybody goes through it. It's actually good. And I want to show you there's two reasons why it's good. Here's reason number one why it's good. Struggling is good because struggling over your sin and over your old self and your old ways, that is proof that the Spirit of God is at work in you. It's not just normal, it's actually a good thing because it shows you that God is doing something in your heart. I feel like I've told this story a million times. You've probably heard it a million times. If you haven't, great, here's your first time. There was this story I heard from a number of years ago of this like Scottish farmer and like the northern highlands of Scotland who was this... um, devout atheist, and he had, a, you know, somewhat of like a, a violent, explosive temper. He'd be in the, fo- the barn, something would happen that would upset him, and he would just like kick a pig or goat or something. I don't know. He just had a violent temper. And one day, there was this traveling preacher guy that kind of came through his region, and he goes, for whatever reason, and hears this guy preach the gospel, and the Lord opens up his heart, and he is drawn to Jesus. He's miraculously converted. He becomes a Christian and goes home and starts living his life now as a believer in Jesus. And he's doing his thing, and like two weeks later, he's out in the barn, and something happens, and his anger gets triggered, and he loses it and kicks a llama or something. And he runs back inside, and they're in the kitchen, and his wife is kind of at the you know, kitchen sink or whatever, and he sits down, and he puts his head in his hands, and he says, didn't work. It didn't work. And he's weeping, and he breaks down, and he says, you know, I gave my life to Jesus. I thought Jesus was going to fix me and fix my anger, and here I go again. As soon as something happens, I kick the thing again. And he's so distraught over this, and he's just so angry. It didn't work. And his wife looks at him and says, look at you. You never would have responded to your anger like this before. The fact that you are weeping and angry and upset over this 
That is the proof that it's working. That is the proof that the Spirit is at work in you, setting you at war with this thing that previously you were okay with. Previously, you and your anger, you and your sin had a ceasefire. You were numb to it. You were cool with it. And now Jesus has come in and has set you at odds with it. The fact that you're struggling is proof that the Spirit is at work. When I first heard that story, I mean, it was, it was life-giving to me. It still is life-giving to me. Because I so resonate with that thing of like, I'm at this point in my life, and I still don't feel like I've turned the corner on some things. And it's frustrating. I mean, there, there's times where I'm like, I've been in conversations with friends, and I've said, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I've been following Jesus for 20 years. You would think I would have made a little bit more progress in this area than I have. You would think I would be past this by now. But that aching, that grief, that laboring against this thing in you is the proof. That is the proof that the Spirit is at work in you. And so I want you to think about how, a, how does a fever work. Think about how a fever works. You know, if you think about what a, you know, I feel like we just went through flu season. Some of y'all probably just got it. Like, it hit Knoxville hard. But if you've ever had, like, the flu or, like, an intense fever, it is just awful. Your body aches, and every part of you is just miserable, and you're exhausted, and you just hate being alive, and you're just miserable. And that feeling, what, when you have a fever, what does that demonstrate about what's going on inside of you? It tells you your immune system is attacking something. There's a fight going on. You're alive. But what if your immune system just stopped fighting? What if you just kind of shut down and the, you know, what would happen is that the, the fever would stop feeling so achy. You would stop feeling so miserable. In fact, you would just kind of like ease into a nice, warm sleep because you'd be dead. <laughs> Maybe that's a very dark uh, illustration, but you get the idea. The struggle shows that you're alive. If you are cool with it, if you're calm with it, then you might be dead. And so here's the question for you to think about. Are you struggling with your sin, laboring against it, hating it, at war with it? And sometimes it might feel like, again, one step forward, three steps back, and you're like, I hate this. This feels frustrating. It feels like I have two things inside of me waging a war. Always, always, always be comforted because that means that you are spiritually alive. But the flip side of that question also needs to be asked. Are you at peace with your sin? Have you normalized it, justified it? Everybody cheats. Not a big deal. Everybody's hooking up. This is college. Everybody's doing whatever. If that is your response, if there's a ceasefire between you and your sin, if there's a normalizing it, minimizing it, justifying it, that might mean that you're spiritually dead. Struggle is proof 
that you are alive. I sometimes hear Christians use I sometimes hear Christians use the word struggling, but they don't mean struggling. So for example, I've talked with couples before and they're like, we're really struggling physically. We keep messing up physically. And I'm like, oh I'm so sorry. I know that is so hard. Like tell me what the struggle looks like. And they're like, well, every night we mess up. I'm like, okay, but like what does the struggle look like? And they're like, well, we feel bad about it the next day. I'm like, okay, but yeah, but what are you like doing to struggle and like fight against it? And they're like, well, nothing. Like, oh, okay, that's not a struggle. I don't know what you call that, but that's not called struggling. The word struggle, let's, let's get nerdy for a second. The Greek word for struggle is agonizomai. <laughs> you don't have to know Greek to know what the word struggle means in the Bible agonizomai. You are agonizomaiing and agonizing and laboring and fighting and you are at war with this thing. If there is peace between you and your sin, you might be spiritually dead. But if there is agony, if there is fight, if there is labor, I mean, think about this. Think about your sin as if it's cancer. When people get diagnosed with cancer, their response is not, you know what, everybody gets cancer. It's not a big deal, you know, whatever. When people get diagnosed with cancer, they declare war on it. They blast their body with toxic chemicals and radiation, and they actually make themselves more sick. Why? Because they know this is a life or death situation. It, It is either I kill it or it kills me. It's the same way with your sin. Either you kill it or it kills you. And when you have a ceasefire with it, when you're at peace with it, it is killing you. But if you are fighting against it, it is proof that you are alive. That's why struggle is good. That's the first reason why struggle is a good thing. Here's the second reason why struggle is good, and I'll I'll end with this. Struggle is good because it drives you to Jesus. Struggle is a good thing because it is, in some ways, a, a mechanism, a gift that drives you into the arms of Jesus. After verse 24 in, in Romans 7, when, when Paul throws up his hand and he's like, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What's the very next thing he says in verse 25? Where does his attention immediately go next? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you struggle and you struggle day in and day out, you begin to feel desperate. And you begin to realize that you're actually weak. And here's the thing. Weakness is the way that you connect with Jesus. Sometimes God allows struggling and hardship in your life because he knows there's no way you would have ever gone to Jesus unless you struggled. And so he allows these struggles into your life because that becomes a thing that drives you into the arms of Jesus where you can say, thanks be to God because I have him. You know, uh, there's this uh, pastor, John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And pastors back in the day, they would write letters, physical letters to people in their churches to kind of spiritually guide them, spiritually direct them. 
And he wrote this uh, one letter to this guy, which, by the way, there's collections of these letters, which are amazing. You can buy, like, a book of the letters of John Newton on, like, Amazon. And one of the letters in that collection, he writes to this guy, and he tells him, I want you to know that there are some advantages to the remaining sin in your life, which is kind of a weird thing for a pastor to say. Like, you know that destructive, cancerous sin thing that God doesn't just hit delete in your life? There's some advantages for that remaining. And I included the little quote in your bulletin there. I'll I'll, I'll read it. I'll, I'll read it. Here's what it says. He says, but when after a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of their weakness, willfulness, ingratitude, and insensibility, they find that none of these things can separate them from the love of God in Christ, Jesus becomes more and more precious to their souls. They love much because much has been forgiven them. You know what he's saying? He's saying when you struggle and you mess up and you continue to struggle day after day and you continue to go back to Jesus over and over and over and you discover that Jesus isn't scolding you, Jesus doesn't have his arms folded and says, when are you going to get it together? Jesus isn't looking at you with this face of disappointment and saying, when are you going to get past all of this? But when you actually experience his unchanging grace and mercy and love over and over and over and over, he becomes precious to you. He becomes the thing that you discover in this life that you need more than anything. And thanks be to God, you already have. So here's the question for tonight, for you. What is your particular struggle? Addiction, uh, obsession with girls, obsession with guys, uh, distorted view of yourself, distorted view of your body, people-pleasing, whatever it is, let yourself, allow yourself to feel your own weakness and desperation in that struggle and let that struggle be the gasoline that drives you into the arms of Jesus. Because only there will you find the grace for the forgiveness of your sin and you will find the grace to empower you to fight and to keep fighting your sin. That is the invitation for you tonight, to take your struggles to the arms of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I pray that this is good news for us and for our ears tonight as we struggle, as we wrestle, as we labor to know that struggling is normal and struggling is good because it drives us into the arms of Jesus. I pray that's where we would find ourselves heading tonight, maybe even right now, that we would stop fighting of our own efforts and fighting based off of our own uh, willfulness and um, willpower, but that we would, we would give up on ourselves and, and run to the one place where we can find help and refuge and strength. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.